This evening's reading will be taken from Titus, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is God's word. Shall we pray? Father, we... um... We are in awe of you tonight as we meet together. We stand in your presence. and We stand before your living word and your spirit is here. And our lives are bare before you. And our lives are bare before your word. And Father, we pray that you would speak powerfully into our lives. We thank you that your words are full of grace and truth. They're full of love and full of righteousness. That they are holy and kind. And we pray that you would speak to each, each one of us personally, speak to us as a community. And we pray that we might know you and your will for our lives. In the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you've heard of a, a, a pastor called Ed Young. Ed Young is um, uh, a pastor of a mega church in the U.S., and um, he, um, uh, he works in Dallas in a church called Fellowship Church. And um, Ed Young has set up a pastor fashion website. And on this website, there are YouTube videos. There are comments. There, there is advice about fashion. There's advice about how to look good. Everything from skinny jeans to ties to haircuts. Everything is, is outlined for us. Now, with regards to Matt and the other pastors and the elders here, what do you want them to be doing? I don't know how you feel about how I'm dressed tonight. I've tried to smarten up a little bit. But, but what should we be doing? Should we be sprucing up our wardrobes? Should we be getting you to spruce up your wardrobe? Should, should your pastors be visiting catwalks in their spare time to advise you about what the latest colors and fashions are? Should they be giving you top tips from Topshop? What do you want? What kind of leaders do you want here at CCM? How should they be using their time? How do you want them to prioritize their time? Now, of course, people have got lots of ideas about what a pastor should do, and most of them are not quite that crazy. Most of them are not quite that strange. But, but the problem is, actually, what, what is really filling our mind? What is actually really shaping our attitude 
to what a pastor, to what a spiritual leader should be doing. Now, of course, there are many good things we want our pastors to be doing. We want them to be nice, don't we? we I mean, who doesn't want that? We want them to be sympathetic and to care for people. We want them to smile and to nod caringly. And for many churches, the main job of a pastor is to, is to bury people and to marry people and maybe to baptize little babies. And then, of course, you get the charismatic preacher, the man with the white suit on stage, the, the man who can whip up your emotions and make you cry at the drop of a hat, the man with an aura, the great speaker. And maybe we want our pastors to be great leaders who can inspire and cast vision. Now, much of these things, apart from the white suit, are pretty good things. And, of course, we want these things. And we, who, who doesn't want a pastor who can lead well, cast vision? Who, who doesn't want a pastor who can be there at the key moments of life? Being, you know, being involved in, in, in funerals and weddings are, are, are a great thing. But biblically speaking, the main role of a pastor is not actually to simply to be caring or to be sympathetic or to be a great orator. The central thing of a pastor or a spiritual leader is not, is not defined by any of those things. Titus, however, does tell us what a spiritual leader, what a pastor should be doing. And this passage here is very clear. It tells you what you want your pastors to be doing. That's our first point here. You can see it on the sheet. Leaders must teach. Now, this letter, Titus, was written by Paul to Titus. And, and he's, his, his job is to sort out a load of churches on the island of Crete. And, and what we're doing here is we're eavesdropping on a conversation between Paul and his lieutenant, Titus. And he's instructing Titus what he needs to do. So in chapter 1, verse 5, we read that the reason, according to Paul, I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, Titus was to put the churches in order. And so this whole passage is direction from Paul to Titus about how he is to do that. And what you get here is actually a whole lot of words that are connected to the idea of training or teaching. And it comes a number of times, verses 1, 3, and 7. And it's also kind of mentioned in another context in verses 4 and 12. But the implication throughout is that Titus is to show the churches on Crete how to live. And in fact, the NIV kind of inserts teaching language in various places where it's not there in the original. But it it kind of helps us to understand the main thrust of what Paul is, is trying to get Titus to do. See, Paul hasn't been able to sort things out. He's had to leave. The work is unfinished. And now Titus is to sort it out. Now, what do you think of when you think of Crete? You think of a charter trip, don't you? You think of a nice place with beaches and blue sky and sun, ancient ruins. You think of a holiday brochure, a Thompson all-in-one inclusive. That's what you think of when you think of Crete. But that's not what Paul sees. See, what we get here in Titus is not a holiday brochure not an all-in-one inclusive, but we see an area that is, spiritually speaking, out of control. It's a spiritual disaster zone. It's a mess. So in verse 12, look with me at verse 12 of chapter 1, will you? What do we read about Cretans? They are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now that is not a compliment, and it's not the kind of thing you put in a holiday brochure, is it? I mean, what is he really saying? He's saying they're a bunch of two-faced, nasty, violent, big, fat slobs. That's what he's saying. It's not too affirming. And, and actually, when you read between the lines, 
in, the, in, in some of the, um, the teaching here in this letter, you can see what they're doing. They're getting off their face at weekends. They're shouting. They're angry. They're wheeling and dealing. There's big problems inside the church in Crete. And so you've got loads of false teaching. People are ignoring the Word of God or they're perverting the Word of God. And, 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 and you've got false leaders who are using people to get themselves rich. It's a mess. That's the world of these churches in Crete. Now, if you forget the weather and the beautiful Mediterranean coast, it's not actually too different from London. Because London is like this. There are many false teachers. There are many people who will tell you that you can get rich if you put your faith in Jesus. I meet people from these churches all the time. There is much spiritual confusion in this city. And so the messy situation we see in Crete is really mirrored in our own situation in 21st century London. Now, just as Titus was needed here to get order into the churches, to sort out the leadership, to stop the false teachers, to bring order, and to teach and train sound doctrine, so actually, that is what your leadership here at CCM is also called to do. Not because you're a mess, but because this is the spiritual situation in our city. And, and, and if, if the leadership here in CCM are not doing that, if they're not teaching and training you, that is a dereliction of their duty. They're not doing their job. That's what you want them to do. And if you, if you leave CCM at some point in the future and you go off and you look for another church, what should you be looking for in the leadership of that church? You should be looking for men who will train you and teach you the Word of God. You want someone who's going to teach you and train you. Now, notice as you go through this passage, there is a strain of authority that's mentioned a number of times. It's not, there's not kind of just suggestions. It's, it's not saying you should, you know, you know, say to people, well, you know, if you'd like to do this. Actually, no, they are to teach and train with authority. It is clear, straight, and pointed. So look at chapter 2, verse 15. They are to teach and encourage and rebuke with all authority. With all authority. In chapter 1, verse 9, the leaders were to encourage and refute. In chapter 1, verse 13, the leaders were to rebuke. So this isn't just authority, but it's, but it's kind of all authority. All authority. The church is to be led and teaching is to be done with authority. Now, why is that? Why does it have to be done like that? Well, the reason it has to be done like that is because the church doesn't belong to us, but it belongs to God. And leadership is to reflect God's authority. We live in a kingdom, not a democracy, in the kingdom of God. And this kingdom has got a king, and therefore it's got authority. Now, of course, we know ourselves, don't we? Again, being 21st century Londoners, we don't really like authority very much. Even the most submissive of us are slightly uncomfortable with having, with, with this talk of authority. And we're very aware of how authority can be misused, aren't we? And, of course, leaders can be on an ego trip. And, of course, some people, and maybe some of you, have had very bad experiences of spiritual leadership. Perhaps it's been authoritarian. There are cults in this city that control people. We tend to be suspicious of authority and dislike it. And we're, we're fearful of spiritual dictatorship. We prefer to think of ourselves as our own people. You know, I kind of do what I want, when I want. No one tells me what to do. But the reality is, whatever you think about authority, you can't actually avoid it. Authority is weaved into the very fabric of the world in which we live. See, when, I, when we reject outside authority, who becomes the authority? I become the authority. I become my own dictator. It's a bit like me and my wife driving a car. I often reject the authority of the sat-nav or the map. 
And because of that, of course, uh, because you, they are stupid things that have no value. And I, and I know what I'm doing. Now, of course, what do you think my wife makes of my authority in that situation? See, when we lose authority, what happens is that everyone competes to get control. And what you get is essentially a, dictator, a, a dictatorship of the, of the individual. And churches can become like that, a kind of collection of individual dictatorships. Everyone wants to decide, but God has made the world in a particular way. God has made the world with walls. There are spiritual walls in our world. And, and just like uh, the, the foolishness of, of uh, ignoring a physical wall can, can bring a, quite a lot of damage to ourselves, so ignoring spiritual walls in God's world can bring us a lot of damage. You see, authority structures in the church are not there to destroy us. They're actually there to liberate us. They're to help us. They're there for our good. So we see in verses 7 to 8 that the leader is to be a person of goodness, a person of integrity. They're not to be a spiritual despot. That, that spiritual authority is to come with integrity. The, yes, they are to be examples. And of course, they, as we know, leaders are imperfect. Yes, there are inconsistencies. But they are to model transformed living in their lives. They're not despots. But... That said, spiritual leadership is to have authority. It is not to suggest things or to give new ideas. It is there to train and to teach. And that's really what you want your leaders to do, to teach you and train you. You want, now this might sound like a strange thing to say, but you want a leader who will rebuke you if, if necessary. Don't necessarily want to be rebuked, but you want a leader who will do that for your good. You want leaders who will correct you. You don't want leaders who will just be nice and smile and just leave you to a dictatorship of the individual. You want leaders who will train you to know Christ. And so we see here in this passage that the job of spiritual leaders is not to train us to get a new wardrobe or anything else mainly, but it is to train us in character and in godliness. And in verses 1 to 10, what we get is some of the content of what Titus is to teach the various groups of the church, and we get an outline of the, of, of the kind of substance of the, of the teaching, the content of the teaching. So let's dive into that. Let's, let's look at how we need to live. Now, it's interesting how verse 1 starts, isn't it? You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. In the original, what that actually says is, is instruction or teaching. Now, we tend to associate the word doctrine with the kind of content of what we believe, the, the kind of the doctrines of the Christian faith, you know, what we think about the church or Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit, kind of what we call theology. But it's very striking here, actually, when you go through it, that actually, when he's talking about doctrine, actually, he's talking about life, about living. The doctrine here is about life. It's very practical. And it, and it just reminds us that both what we, what we believe about Jesus and how we live are a unity. They're not separate things. You can't disconnect those two things, but they are a unity, and they always, always belong together. So to teach good doctrine is to teach holiness, to teach character, to teach how we live. If we've got a wrong living, we've got wrong doctrine. Lack of holiness is a lack of teaching. Let's, uh, let's have a look at some of the themes that come out uh, in, these, in these verses, and, and you can see there's five bullet points. So I'll take us through five uh, many points there. Firstly, notice that he's talking about the whole church. This is addressed to a whole group. Yes, and he does break it down into, into individuals, but, but initially this is written to a community, as, as are most of the letters in the New Testament. Most of the New, 
of the letters in the, in the New Testament are not written to individuals, but to communities. And therefore, there is a corporate nature to our holiness. We're not just simply a bunch of individuals. We are, there is a life amongst us, a corporate life, a community life. And therefore, becoming like Christ is not simply a personal project, an individual project, but it is something that happens together. You are transformed as a church together. You are made like Christ together. So in verse 4, it talks, there's a reference there to older women training younger women. There are, they, they are to mentor one another. And, and, and as, as we've already seen, the spiritual leaders are to teach and to train. But the whole point is, we are training and teaching one another to grow up into Christ. And as a church, CCM is growing into something. It's growing into something together. Your holiness is not just an uh, an issue for yourself. It's an issue for the church. And your sin is not just an issue for yourself. It is an issue for the church. And as we grow in holiness, we impact one another. As we rebel in sin, we also impact one another. We are constantly shaping one another together. So this, uh, this is addressed to a group. Secondly, notice the different challenges in different situations. There is a context to discipleship here. So... Following Jesus and obeying God and and doing God's will is worked out in a number of different contexts. So here he speaks to older men, to older women, to younger women, to younger men, and to slaves. What, What do you have here? You have different ages, you have different genders, you have different social contexts, and they all bring different challenges, and they are dressed slightly differently. Now the fact is, it is really important to see that there are particular challenges in your situation, in your life today, that are, that are particular about your context. There will be particular pressures on your character due to that context, perhaps because of your age, or because of your gender, or because of where you work, or, or whether you're married or you're single. There are particular challenges in your life, and you know those challenges very well. Now have a think about that. Where, where, does, where does the rubber hit the road for you now? It may be different in five years' time or ten years' time. It may have been different ten years ago or five years ago. But now, today, where is the particular challenge for you in, in your walk with the Lord? The Spirit of God is working for spiritual fruit in your life, in your situation now. With all the temptations you're facing, with all the struggles you're facing, with all the with all the issues you're facing. So often we just want to be taken out of our context, don't we? We want our circumstances to change. I just, um, I, I just want to live in a different place. When you're young, you, you want to be older, so you've got maturity. When you're older, you want to be young again. When you're, when you're single, you want to be married. When you're married, you want to be single. When you get a job, you want another job. We always want our circumstances to change. And we think, if only, if only this happened, then everything would be different. If only I worked with different people. But no, the Lord wants you to work out your holiness and your character and your discipleship in your situation now, today. And he's working in your stage of life with all its difficulties and all its particularities to make you like Christ. You don't have to be abstracted from your situation. God is working in the middle of that. You don't need to get taken out of it before you grow. You grow in the middle of your situation and in your circumstances. And that is where God is working with all the joy and the pain that that involves, with all the people you love and all the people that you hate. God is working in the middle of that, and he wants you to work out your faith following him there. So there are different challenges for us, and we can each work out where the pressure points are for us. Thirdly, notice the emphasis on self-control here. Now that theme of self-control goes through the whole book. 
You get it in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. You get it in verse 5. The, uh, the older women are to be self-controlled and pure. Verse uh, 12. We'll look at this next week. That the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And we, and we get references to be sober-minded or not having too much wine in verse 3. Literally, not being a slave to wine. Not being, being enslaved to wine. And of course, we saw just now how the Cretans are big, fat, lazy slobs. They're evil liars and, and brutes. We're called to self-control. Now, is London a place where there's really much self-control? Is your work culture a place that encourages restraint and holding back? Does TV encourage you to restrain yourself? Well, maybe when it comes to getting a perfect body. And occasionally the NHS will suddenly say, look, if we keep on doing this, we're all going to die by the time we're 45. But actually, probably not. There's not, there's not many other calls to restraint in our culture. And as soon as we start talking about self-control, it seems a bit puritanical and joyless. You know, if you you were going to come tonight and hear a talk on self-control, would you kind of feel excited about that? It feels a bit depressing, doesn't it? Sure, you're meant to have fun while you're young. Just have a laugh. Enjoy yourself. But the fact is, you see, our society and the city of London is a place that's really out of control out of control. Think about the proliferation of self-help groups. They are, there are AA groups everywhere, NA groups, Chocolates Anonymous. I've even heard that there is a Jaffa Cakes Anonymous somewhere in London, which you can go to. So I'll give you the number later if anyone has a problem. We're, we're at war with our own bodies, aren't we? On the one hand, we, we, we're told that we are an obese nation and we struggle all the time with eating too much. And, and using food as comfort. And then on the other hand, there are eating disorders, where, which are basically a dysfunctional way of trying to bring control over my life. Do we, well, and we seesaw between all of these things. There is credit card debt. There's spirals out of control. And it, and it might be tonight that you know that your sex life is out of control. Maybe just the internet has opened up horizons for you. And you know, actually, your, your sex life is just completely out of control. It may well be that you're drinking way too much. And you kind of know you are, and you're trying to stop yourself, but you just keep drinking way too much. It could be that you've actually just got a foul temper. And it, and it may be that you, you look like Jesus in so many different areas of your life, except when you flip out at work, or you flip out with someone you, you, um, work, you uh, live with. Who are the biggest drug users in London? They're not where I live on housing estates. It's you guys, the young professionals. You're the biggest drug users. Not you personally, but you as a group. <laughs> I hope. Uh, but cocaine is, is, is the biggest, biggest uh, used drug uh, in, in, in uh, London. We, we have out-of-control out lives. And so we need self-control. We desperately need self-control. How do we get that self-control? Well, it's not willpower. It's not resolutions. It's not more rules. And, you know, those things are all helpful. You know, let's have some resolutions and rules and willpower. Great. But the, the, they're not bad things, but they won't solve the problem. And you're not going to simply get self-control because the preacher's giving you a bad conscience and you kind of walk out feeling a bit bad. The secret to self-control is having Christ-filled joy. The self-control is really about being controlled by a greater joy and by seeing that this thing is subject to this thing and this thing here is Jesus Christ and being filled with joy in him. C.S. Lewis says this in a, in a, a wonderful sermon 
written about 70 years ago. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that great? That's very striking, isn't it? We're far too easily pleased. And you see, temptation is fueled by the lie that God's keeping good things from us. We feel that we've got to take it for ourselves or we'll go without. And we feel sometimes that we're like in a desert. And, we've, and, the, and the thing we're tempted by is like the, an, an oasis in the desert. And we're just longing for a drink in the desert. But the scripture tells us we're not in a desert, but rather we're led by a good shepherd who takes us, who takes us to green pastures and to still waters and he restores our soul. The scripture teaches us that the Lord does not withhold any good thing from us. Our Father in heaven is not stingy. He's not holding out on you, but he gives you blessing beyond all your wildest dreams. He gives you infinite joy. Your Father doesn't offer to quench your thirst with a few polluted drops of water in a bucket, but he gives you an endless reservoir of grace and joy to take hold of. Use Christ-filled joy on your out-of-control desires and you'll slowly start to see some change and some growth. Fourthly, submission. We see submission here in this passage. Now, self-control sounds negative to 21st century London. Submission, me talking about submission, is like me throwing myself on a hand grenade. It is just one of those things no one wants to talk about. But in verse 5, we're told that wives submit to husbands. In verse 9, slaves are called to submit to their masters. There's an implication here in this passage that the younger are to submit to the older. And it's implied as well that the congregation will submit to spiritual leaders. Now, I can't go into all the questions about all the specifics of those questions because each one of those things would be a sermon all by itself. But I just want us to think more generally about this aspect of character, of submission, of submission. Now, submission is something that every Christian is called to. Actually, everyone submits at some point in some area of their life. But our fear about submission is that really it's about me becoming a doormat. And, and a lot of our problems with submission and submitting to people in, in different areas of our lives is this fear that basically makes us a pushover, it makes us weak, that we're letting people boss us about. But submission is not about any of those things. It's not about keeping quiet about what you think. It's not about uh, losing your ability to push for something. It's not about always agreeing and nodding and smiling. Think about it. If you agree, you don't need to submit. You only need to submit to someone if you actually disagree with them. It's about, submission is about being secure enough to know that you don't always need to get your way. It's about being strong enough to give way on things. It's about being humble enough to let go. It's, it, it's about being pliable and gentle. You see, people who always need to dominate and get their own way are fundamentally insecure characters. They're characters who are empty on the inside. To, to, to submit requires tremendous humility, tremendous strength. Submission isn't about being a doormat, but it's the overflow of tremendous security in Christ. And so this is why this aspect of character is so important in the Scriptures. It reflects Christ's own submission to his Father. To submit is to be like Christ. Fifthly, Live in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Live in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Verse 5. We're told that women are to be subject to the husband so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8. And 
and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then verse 10, with slaves, they're not to steal from their masters, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, the city of London may not like us for lots of different reasons. Uh, they may have all kinds of opinions about us. They may hate the idea of absolute truth. They may hate what we say about different social issues. And to be honest, that's all just kind of part of the course. That's kind of what we should expect in many ways, that people won't like us. And that is nothing to shy away from. But let's not ruin the reputation of Jesus in this city by our lives. Let's not damage the cause of the gospel by hypocrisy. In 1414, there was a famous church council in the city of Constance in Germany. It was, a, it was a Vatican council, and it was basically bishops and clergy and cardinals all gathering in this place to, to discuss weighty matters, doctrinal matters. And it went on for several years. But while this council was going on, there were about 1,500 prostitutes who got employed in the city to service the clergy, basically, in the city. And today, if you go to Constance, there is a, there's a statue of a prostitute at the entrance to the city remembering and mocking that, that church council. The cause of the gospel can be ruined by the very people who are called to preach it. Now, even as I say that, which one of us isn't embarrassed about something we've said or done, somewhere we've acted, somewhere we've behaved at work, the things we've done in our lives, how we've treated our housemate or a client or a stranger on the tube? Which one of us isn't embarrassed by that? And of course... The, with, with that comes the call to live in daily repentance, to live in daily repentance of the sins in my life, of the way that I've been acting. And, and, and it may well be that some patterns of behavior in my workplace, at home, that actually are contradicting the gospel. And we need to take that to the Lord tonight and ask for his power. And he's gracious and good and kind. And as we'll see next week, he's a God full of grace. He's teaching us all the time to grow. But there's also a tremendous encouragement in this for us. Because it means that the smallest kindness can make the gospel incredibly attractive to someone. The smallest thing that you've done for someone may lead someone to Christ. You may think that you're unimportant. You may think, well, I don't have any great gifts. I'm not a great evangelist. What can I really do for the kingdom of God? I don't, I'm just not, I'm not one of these people who's going to draw lots of people to Christ or invite people. But the point is this. Live for Jesus in the details of your life. Serve him serve your work colleagues, serve your housemates, live out a godly marriage, love people, and you will have influence and power beyond your wildest dreams. Because God will use that to change this city. All these things, these small little things, they will echo in eternity. There's never an, insigni an insignificant word of kindness. There's never an unimportant act of submission. There's never... Uh, you, when you bear with an insult at work, there's, that's never a waste of time. It's never fruitless. It always has an impact. There's always a spiritual impact. The Lord uses all such things to awaken people to Jesus. It is never unimportant. So let's make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in everything that we do. So this city will see that there's something distinctive and different about us. So we see here that God's got an agenda for our churches. It's an agenda of transformation. And he sent leaders to teach us and to guide us. He's not fussed about how you dress, but he is fussed about what you look like. 
And therefore, he, he, is, he, is sent, he has sent Christ, uh, uh, first of all, to, to save us, and he sent leaders to teach us about Christ. God doesn't care so much about what we do uh, in our work, uh, in terms of our jobs. It doesn't matter what our haircut is, is like. He doesn't care what kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in. But he cares whether we look like Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make us a people fit for God. And God is working now to transform you and change you and make you like Christ. If you're wise, you'll let Matt and the other leaders here lead you and teach you and train you. Pray for them that they'd be wise. Let them exercise authority for your good and teach each other and let God's word dwell amongst you. And who knows, who knows what the Lord might do here in this church and how he might use this church to adorn the gospel in this city and to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive for everyone in this city. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word here tonight. And you know each one of us. You know what's going on in our lives. You know our situations. You know our struggles. You know the patterns of behavior. And Father, we bring our lives to you. And we ask for your mercy and your grace. We pray, Father, for your encouragement where we need it. We pray for your correction where we need it. And we pray, Father, that our churches might be places that adorn the gospel, that exalt Christ. Amen.